Nothing says Christmas like fire. And that's why my sermon is entitled Apocalypse Now, which is, of course, a Christmas movie. No, it's not. That's not true. But Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Not an appropriate Christmas movie, but it is a Christmas movie. It's one man fighting the spirit of consumerism. I actually kind of mean that. Oh, and I also need to light the other candle. As you can see, I'm inexperienced with Advent candle wreaths, but what's one more flame to the fire? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We're going to read from our lectionary text this morning for the second Sunday in Advent. My sermon is entitled Apocalypse Now. We're continuing in our series called Christmas at the End of the World. Advent is the season of anticipation. It's the season of waiting and longing. The beginning of the church calendar doesn't start with the realization or the arrival of Christ, but it starts with the anticipation of His coming. So we, we as a church, we meditate and we reflect on the coming of the Christ child in the Christmas story, the people who are waiting and longing for Him. We also reflect and we meditate on the coming of the kingdom of God in the end of the temple age, which was uh, something that happened in A.D. 70. In Matthew 24, Jesus prophesied that this generation would not pass away until they saw the coming of the Son of Man. And uh, Kendall talked a little bit about that last week when he talked about how uh, the coming of Jesus is a transformative reality that's both, both peaceful and chaotic And God always steps right into the middle of our mess, into the middle of our pain, and that's where the Son of Man arrives, both in the manger, in the Christmas story, but also for the believers in Jesus who were caught in the temple age and who didn't receive, uh, you know, the rest of the nation didn't receive Jesus as their Messiah. And then, of course, the second coming of Christ, because we proclaim that He shall come to judge the living and the dead. This is our Christian faith. This is our declaration. And in the, uh, in the creeds, they celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming again. That although Jesus is ruling and reigning now, it has not yet fully been unveiled the extent to which Jesus is ruling and reigning. And we proclaim that he will come again and that every eye will see and that every tongue will confess and that every knee will bow to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we are simply the ones who are already serving the God who is already ruling, okay? But we call this series Christmas at the End of the World because when we talk about Advent, we're really talking about an apocalyptic time. The word apocalypse is obviously a different word now than it was then. Now the word apocalypse is... Really, the kind of movie where everything goes wrong and everybody almost dies, and whoever the hero is has plot armor. They don't, they just can't seem to be killed, like John Cusack in uh, what is that one called? Twenty Twelve. I don't know if you've seen that movie. He outruns an earthquake in the movie. The day after tomorrow, the four or five heroes of the movie outrun the cold. I know it doesn't make any sense. But it's kind of fun to watch on YouTube. There's like these people and they're clearly on a green screen. They're like, come on! And like you see the frost. And I'm like, these people, whoever wrote this movie never came to Saskatchewan. That's not how the cold works. It doesn't like slowly freeze. It's like the speed of a human running, right? That's not how it works. But we kind of know that this season is an apocalyptic time because it has such energy, such intensity 
getting ready for Christmas. And we also know that it is an unveiling, right? Like, what is Christmas morning but the unveiling of all of your hopes and dreams? Not only that, but Christmas can be an apocalypse like it was for me when I thought, I thought that nothing could ruin the holiday. And I had my own apocalypse when, one Sunday morning, preparing for church, I came into my parents' bedroom, I walked into their closet, and I looked up in their closet at something that I didn't understand. It was the Marble Works marble set that I wanted, that I longed for. And I thought to myself at first, what is a colorful toy doing up in their, oh no. And I entered into a deep lament as my Christmas was over. Two weeks early, I had ruined my Christmas by just being inquisitive and curious. And I vowed, inside myself, I vowed, I will never let this happen again. My Christmas destroyed, ruined, no hope, nothing to anticipate anymore. I know what my presents are. And then it was, what, three years later, four years later, sometime later, I was a little older, a little wiser. You stay out of mom and dad's room when it's Christmas season. I know that now. I'm not going to let anything bring my Christmas into apocalypse. And I was in the living room, and my mom has this journal sitting on the couch. And again, just being inquisitive, I like to read. I think to myself, I'm just going to take a look at this. Now, I know better now, but then I had no idea. And I didn't know that my mom kept track of all of the presents that she purchased year after year so that, I'm not exactly sure what this was for, to be honest, <laughs> but she wrote in her journal on the very latest entry all of the presents that I was going to be receiving <laughs> in about a week and a half. And I came to her with such a crushed spirit. I felt so betrayed that I would now know. And mom tried to make it better. She said, it's okay. You'll forget by the time that the, the gifts rolled around. And I was like, I won't forget. I know already. So this has now given me a certain uh, mental illness toward Christmas. I am a 31-year-old man. And, I, and when I see the gifts under the tree, I get paranoid. Last night, Alicia wrapped something for me when I was out, and I came home, and she's like, here's the box. Do you want to shake it? And I was like, no, get that thing away from me. <laughs> because I have this deep trauma about when my Christmas was ruined, and I came to the end of my world, which really, for many children, is the end of the world for them, because they, they measure their life as before and after Christmas, with anticipation of the next one. To be honest with you, I think that children intuitively have the best sense of being spiritual. Like, for example, we do communion every Sunday morning as part of the service. If you didn't know that, then just come a little earlier and you'll be able to join us because it's available to everyone. We practice the open table and open fellowship of communion, but we do it during what some people call pre-service prayer. And I always bring my kids because I want them to get used to the liturgy of receiving the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, I don't think they understand it, but I also don't think I understand it. But what I learned from them is how much they really, 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 really want to eat a little chunk of bread and a shot glass of juice. 
like it's like the highlight of their day. It's like, we get to go to church on Sunday and have juice? And I'm like, yes, it's the, it's the blood of Jesus. And bread? Yes, it's the body of Jesus. And you have to like hold their arms back from reaching up and grabbing it and just devouring it. And on one hand, I go, wow, you know, they could be a bit more reverent. And then on the other hand, I go, they clearly have an appetite for something and I could learn from them, from their desire to receive from Jesus what he's offering. And similarly, the way children anticipate Christmas is the way we all should anticipate Christmas. For sure, children are caught up in the trappings of receiving presents and they're very excited to get gifts. I understand that. But ultimately, what Christmas is, is the greatest gift anyone could receive. And so when we learn how to anticipate and when we practice anticipation, what we are doing is we are refining and reframing our head and our heart to match the truth, the reality of our world, which is that humanity has received the greatest gift, Christ incarnate, God with us. There is no greater gift than God fully and completely with you. If that doesn't feel resonant within you, if it doesn't feel radically true, if it doesn't make your heart come alive, well then thank God you're here with us in Advent. Because the cares of this world have a way of dulling our affection, dulling our awareness and our anticipation. And our times of gathering together to anticipate are not in vain. You may say, well, isn't God always with us? Hasn't Jesus already been given? Why do I spend time anticipating something I already have? That's a great question. The reason why is there's a difference between knowing something is true and experiencing it. And there is a difference between God's abiding presence everywhere and his manifest presence with me. The theological truth that God is filling all things with his presence and his glory, is true. But it means nothing if you do not experience it. When you think about couples who have been married for decades and decades, what they draw from, the well that gives their relationship life, is not the vows they, mem- they pronounced during the ceremony. Have you ever asked a, a couple that's been married for a long time to repeat their vows just on the spot? They don't have them memorized. Maybe, maybe the occasional couple does, but I don't. Sorry, honey. I don't have my vows memorized. They were so important to me. If, you, if you're married, you remember how important your vows were to you, but you don't have them memorized, do you? Why? Because you live in a present reality of love, that's established on the giving and the receiving of experiencing someone's presence in your life. And that creates a history that's built upon day by day, week by week, year by year. And so your love becomes richer and truer even though the most sacred thing maybe you ever said, one of the most important things that ever came out of your mouth, you totally forget So to say that God is with us is one thing, but to experience this abiding presence is another. And when we practice anticipation, we learn how to become more childlike 
in both anticipating Christ's return, but also in appreciating his presence here and now. It does me no good to simply repeat the theology that God is with me. I have to experience that here and now. I have to know his love and his presence here and now, both for my life to be changed and also for me to be a person of change to the world around me. So that's all pretext. That's all to frame. I'm just trying to pastorally frame the text we're reading today. Because remember, we're talking about anticipating Jesus' coming. And so we, we strangely take a little detour in this Advent passage. We talk about Jesus' coming ministry, and the person who made the way for Jesus' ministry was John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is proclaiming Jesus' coming ministry, Jesus' coming messianic rule and reign, and this proclamation is prophetic. It's the, it's the summary of everything the Old Testament meant. Now, we don't have the, the ministry of John the Baptist, but his prophetic voice can still help us prepare our hearts to receive this Christmas. So let's read from verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was the tetrarch of the region of Eterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." Pause right there. Luke does this amazing thing. Luke is not simply trying to locate this event in history. Luke is naming all of the kings, religious leaders, governors, all of the authorities that are very quickly about to become outdated by the king of kings and lord of lords. (laughs) The word of the Lord came to John the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. I've said this to you many times before. Whenever your Bible says all, it's very important. And it's very important that you don't try to figure out how all doesn't mean all. We're going to get into John's sermon in a minute because I feel like there's something for us in it today. But I really only have one thing to tell you this morning that's found in the scripture we already read. Which is the the right posture of your life to receive Jesus is the posture of repentance. You must be willing to have your heart and mind changed if you want to receive Jesus the right way. 
Let me give you a little bit more of a frame for what is happening with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the son of a priest. He has no credentials, no special skills. (laughs) But in the middle of a 400-year drought where God's voice is silent and there are no prophets in Israel, John leaves his father and mother and his community and he goes out and he lives in the wilderness. As a kid, I was obsessed with the idea that he ate locusts and honey. The honey sounds nice, but the locusts, how do you catch them? What do you do with them once you've caught them? And then, of course, he didn't go to the store and buy honey. He was like doing the Winnie the Pooh thing, right? Sticking his hand into the honeycomb and the bees were biting him and he was saying, oh, bother. I can't, I can't even do the Winnie the Pooh voice, but... Oh, bother. Anyway, I was a little posh. Um, So John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness. (laughs) Sometimes we read the Bible so quickly that we brush over some pretty obvious things that we should maybe contemplate for a minute. He goes out into the wilderness to proclaim the word of the Lord. He goes where nobody is to tell people about Jesus. Imagine I decided to start a ministry. I said, God has given me a message. He wants me to share this message with the world. So I am going to nowhere to shout it at no one. You would say to me, um, don't you bring a message where the people are? And this is what most of the prophets did. They would go through the cities and the towns, and they would proclaim what God told them to say, Right? But that's not what John does. John goes into the wilderness. Now, the strangest thing happens. Whatever's going on, because of the spirit that John carries, begins driving people out of their way of life into the wilderness to hear him. I would have liked to be the first guy. Like, I'm just out there fishing on the River Jordan. And there's this crazy dude with like long hair who's wearing animal skins. He's just shoving bugs in his mouth. And he's like, repent! And I'm like, something about that man feels very compelling. And I put my rod down and I just join this crazy dude in the desert. Eventually, by the time we pick this story up, John has amassed quite a following and it's become a trend for everyone, all sorts of people, to come out into the wilderness to hear John speak a message of repentance. And what is his message of repentance? His message is you need to change the way your heart and your mind approaches life to be able to receive the Messiah. The reason why I feel so compelled to say this this morning is I feel that many of us, myself included, do not realize the danger of becoming apathetic toward something everyone receives. Remember, all flesh will see the salvation of God. Peace on earth and goodwill is for all humankind upon whom his favor rests. 
But you have to admit that Herod received this news a little differently than the wise men did. Herod received the same message, the same good news, but it drove him to murder babies. As Dad said last week, there were many more shepherds in Israel than the ones who came to the manger, but only some people were positioned to receive, to celebrate, to see, to become aware of what this baby meant. And the thing that scares me is when God decides to be lavishly generous with everyone, only some people actually receive. And not only that, but the ones who don't, One of, the, one of the New Testament writers says, it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What I do not mean is this. I do not mean that God's disposition toward you changes based on how you respond to him. God is not petty. He's not reactionary. But Bill Johnson says, the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. The condition of your heart and mind have a radical effect on what salvation, on how you experience salvation. (laughs) Being unwilling to repent has a damaging effect on your soul. As soon as John proclaims that all flesh will see the salvation of God, he turns to the Pharisees who have come out to hear him preach. See, they have this established religious order and they have this established tradition and this way of doing things. And John says, you're a brood of vipers. Now what will happen in this story is that these men who have come out to adjudicate, oh, we'll see if this John guy has something going on. These men come out and they hear a message of repentance and it has the opposite effect on them than it does on John's disciples and on the poor and common people who hear John and get baptized. Their heart hardens and they eventually crucify love. And what we learn from the gospel discourse is the majority of persecution comes from people who think they believe God and have the correct theology, but they have not repented in their heart and therefore the salvation that comes to them hardens them and makes them the persecutor and the oppressor of the ones who are trying to live in love and forgiveness. See, what I wouldn't want for us is I wouldn't want for, 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 for all of us, myself included, I wouldn't want Christmas to have the opposite effect on my life and on my family and on my relationships than the one I hoped and dreamed for. What do people want out of this season? People want to connect with one another. People want to feel love. They want to feel goodwill, right? They want to come closer together. This is the gift that God is giving us in Jesus. (laughs) The fulfillment of the incarnation is that God is so with you, he is as integrated in your body as you are. In you, in God, you live and move and have your being. There is not a cell in your body that does what it does without the abiding presence of the Lord within you. 
But we experience life with a certain detachment from that, and we don't know what that even means to our life and our relationships. It's just theology. It's just a theory. It's just a thing people like me say when they have the mic. But that was never God's intention. The intention of the incarnation was not just that God in the man Jesus would become one Uh, would become fully God and fully man to integrate himself with humanity, but that in integrating himself with humanity, a new community would be incarnate to the world. And now Jesus says, my world is actually hidden in your relationships. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Paul says, we're being built together as living stones to be a temple for God. This is what happens to us at Christmas time. This is what the world really needs. They don't just need a good <laughs> work Christmas party and a get together with their in-laws that doesn't lead to a fight. Just one silent night out of a thousand loud ones. They they need incarnation. Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's ministry fulfills what Isaiah 40 proclaims, and we'll read that in a minute. But the thing I want to draw attention to is this idea that ravines get filled, and mountains get brought low, and crooked roads get made straight. Here's what salvation does. Salvation takes a low place and establishes it. And it takes a high place and it brings it low. Salvation is very different if you live in a ravine than it is if you live on a mountain. Because if you live in a ravine where your house gets flooded every spring, salvation is amazing Joyful news. But if you live on a mountain above everybody else, salvation is the end of your world. Salvation is your apocalypse. Because your, your height advantage, your beautiful view, it's now brought down to where everybody else is. The reason why we need to repent I'll put, I'll put it another way. The reason why I need to repent is far too often I'm comfortable with the way the world is. The reason I need to repent is I am, I am happy to occasionally give to the poor without longing for the end of poverty. So I become accustomed to my lifestyle. I become accustomed to my privileges. I become accustomed to the way that my life is actually better than other people, and I'm kind of okay with it. I'm just, I'm just trying to be honest with you. <laughs> if I say this about us, it might feel accusatory, so I'll just point the, the, the spotlight at me. I have more money than other people do. I have more relational wealth. I have people who love me and celebrate me. None of these are bad things. This is what God wants for everyone. But when I am okay with my place of privilege with my place of influence, at the expense of other people who are suffering, when I become indifferent to that, salvation is not 
something that benefits me. Salvation is something that humbles me. Like, there are far too many Christians right now in the world today, especially in North America. They, you'll notice they don't talk like this in China. First of all, they can't. But second of all, when you meet them, they don't want to. Just so happens that the only Christians who are complaining about their place and their status in the world are perhaps in the most privileged and free nation in the world. And they talk about being brought low as though this is like, well, first of all, it is the end of their world. <laughs> but secondly, they talk about it as though it's not perhaps a work of the Spirit. We used to have more influence in government and, and Christians used to, we used to be able to pray in public schools and that's been taken away. Now God is going to judge our nation. But the problem is that God's judgment never starts without there. It always starts in here. <laughs> and the problem is that when we've grown accustomed to our place of privilege, we don't experience salvation as salvation. We experience it as an apocalypse. When, when Jesus tells us to take the lowest seat at the table and we don't, we say, you know what, I think I deserve to sit next to the head of the table. When we get humbled, it feels devastating to us. It feels destructive to us. And, and what I'd like to suggest to you is this. I'm not saying that the bad things in your life are, are brought about by God. But what I am saying is that sometimes we face problems and circumstances in our life. And we are rallying against the devil because we're hoping that our life will be able to continue the way we like it. When in reality, we're missing our salvation. Like, how many times have we heard this story, okay? And I'll, again, I'll just point the, the spotlight at my own life. How many times have we heard a story that is essentially like this? I didn't have enough money. I was struggling to make ends meet. God calls me to be generous. And then out of the outflow of my generosity, suddenly there's a whole bunch of blessing in my life. So many Christians think that what God is doing is God is withholding from them and waiting for them to do the right thing so that he can bless them. When in reality, all of us in this room are in the 1% of the richest people on the earth. And if in my life I withhold because I don't think I have enough, it's actually my actions that are keeping me from seeing that the salvation of God has been given to flow through me. And it's only as I open my hand and become generous that the blessing I had already received is seen for what it is. So before, I'm stingy and I'm withholding because I think I don't have enough and I think everything I have is supposed to be mine. But once I humble myself and repent, God hasn't changed his disposition toward me at all. But suddenly, with an open hand, the salvation of the Lord can flow through me because I realize I'm not here for my own benefit. I'm actually here for the benefit of others. And this is why we say all the time that God, for example, you know, I, we talked about this a few weeks ago with tithing. God can do more with 90% of your money than you can do with 100% of your money. It honestly has nothing to do with the disposition of God. He doesn't decide to get more generous toward you as a reward. That's not who he is. He blesses everyone. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. 
But, but justice and righteousness to God is a life lived towards others in self-emptying love. And those who are just and those who are righteous live as a conduit of heaven. And what they discover is the same blessing goes more than enough of the way when their heart and their head turn toward the salvation of God. So he began saying, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that out of these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. John says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Meaning this, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than think your way into a new way of acting. Let me say that again. It is easier for you to act your way into a new way of thinking than think your way into a new way of acting. This is another thing that I'm guilty of. Today's just one big confessional. I am guilty of coming into church, hearing the word of the Lord, agreeing with it in my heart, feeling very convicted, and then leaving and doing nothing about it. I get all the benefit of changing my mind and my heart privately, none of the cost of living it out publicly. This is called getting spiritually fat. (laughs) I consume more calories than I burn off. John said, it's not enough for you to come out and internally feel like what I'm saying is correct. I'm asking you to change your behavior. Now, for the Lutherans in our midst, this is going to start to sound like works righteousness. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that your behavior earns your change of heart and mind. Repentance is a gift. You can't actually change your heart and mind. Have you ever actually tried to change your heart or your mind? It's really difficult. We're pretty set in our ways, aren't we? But it's precisely because it's difficult that we must gesture toward the incoming salvation of the Lord, the incoming apocalypse of the Lord, and say to ourselves, as a, as a prophetic sacramental act, I am going to behave differently in anticipation of my head and my heart changing. You won't feel different about the poor until you start giving to them. I'm just telling you that right now. You can watch a thousand World Vision commercials, but it's only as you give to the poor will your heart toward them change. And if you say, well, I'm just going to wait for the Lord to convict me, what's actually happening is you're becoming desensitized. And this is the real danger that I'm, I'm aware of. It's not that God's disposition changes. It's that if I come into worship in this environment, or in other environments, and I choose to become casual and passive with God, he doesn't overcome my bias toward him. He waits for me to repent. So when I sit back while other people are worshiping, I think to myself, well, I just, I just want to wait for the course to move me. Like when, I, when I was a young person, I would like sit, and then it just feels, you got to try this at least once. You sit in a worship service, it's like, and then when you get to the course, right, um, so here I am to worship. You feel like a, you feel like Rose on the front end of the Titanic, right? If you time it with the music, you're like, ooh, that's just soaring, right? I wait for something externally to move me. I wait for a leader in my life to say, hey, come on, lift your hands. Suddenly now I feel inspired to lift my hands. But what happens? The internal mechanism where I receive the salvation of the Lord is broken. 
and I'm actually becoming more desensitized to the Lord's presence. I have met people, I've met two different individuals in the same service who have come up to me and say, yeah, you know what, the presence of the Lord, I just didn't feel him today. And then someone else on the other side of the room goes, oh, did you feel it this morning? My goodness, God was just so thick in here. I'm like, we really need to figure out what was happening with this person. Do you think God is different between these two people? No. No. But what's happening is the condition of the heart that we cultivate becomes the place we receive salvation. And it will either tear down the wrong things in our life that we've made a part of us, or it will build up the things we are lacking and longing for. It will either bring our mountain low or our ravine up. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you're living in a ravine, you're like, you know what? I know I have all of God, and yet I know I do not have enough. (laughs) This is a a paradoxical mystery. It's like, I know that I will never receive more of the presence of the Lord than what was given to me in Jesus, and yet I still have not experienced enough of him. I'm not longing for him out of some some deep void, and I don't believe that he's withholding from me, like, oh, come on, Connor, you can earn it, but I am am changing my heart, and I'm changing my posture so that repentance will change my heart because I know that the theory of something is far less than the experience of something. And we can't afford to become people who gather together and get further and further desensitized to the truth we claim. I bring up worship because it's just so important to me. I want to be, again, be honest with you and tell you that for the majority of the time, a worship service in this stage of my life is a terrible experience. Terrible. Here's why it's terrible. Because when I'm up on the platform, I am leaving my wife with both of our children and the responsibility to raise them in worship. So I'm aware of the sacrifice our family is making. I don't know if you've worked with like three-year-olds before, but they do not have the attention span you'd like them to, like ever. Children are either way slower or way faster than you want them to be. They never go at the speed you want them to go at. It's like they're all over the house. It's like, it's time to go. And then putting on their boots is like, (laughs) can you be slow during the fast times and fast during the slow times, please? So even today... Worship service is on, and I want Leisha to be able to participate by singing, because that's in her heart. She has a spirit of worship. So I am literally, I don't know if you noticed, but I am, I am hoisting my kids in both arms, and I'm like, I am determined to make this a worship service for them. Because the goal is not their happiness. The goal is Christ-likeness. So I am getting nothing out of this experience, and they are getting almost nothing out of this experience. But if they just get a little something, it's better than a lot of nothing. And I know that if I am passive, they will only inherit passivity from me. I know if I'm disconnected and detached, I, <laughs> I would really like to be disconnected and detached. I'd like to sit down and just hang out on my phone for like 10 years. Maybe that will help boost my, my energy back from the sacrifice of raising children. But I know I can't abdicate my role to give them an inheritance of faith without modeling a lifestyle they can receive from. 
So I just, I'm just being honest with you. I come into church as essentially a performer for two people. One's three-year-old, one's a one-year-old, and I'm only trying to model for them what it looks like to have a repentant practice before the presence of the Lord. Everyone on the earth gets the same presence of the Lord, but it's only those who turn their heart toward him who will receive him the right way. Everyone else will have a dramatically different experience. Now here's the, the, the amazing thing, is God is even merciful to them. Ultimately, God is even merciful to them. But the fire of his love is coming. The fire of his love (laughs) is his judgment. He is coming with the fullness of his presence, like it or not, to everyone. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, tomorrow, and into the future. And I want us to be a people who turn toward him. The crowds were questioning him, saying, what then shall we do? This is a great question. What do we do? (laughs) You're saying all these apocalyptic things. What will we do? John says this. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. The first place we become ready to receive from the love of God is the place in our lives where we are generous. This is why many people have said, generosity is the kindergarten of the kingdom. God's presence is like a waterfall being poured on everyone, and your generosity is the size of your container. (laughs) Like, before I'm generous, I show up with a thimble. And then as I give, my capacity to receive increases. This is why it's more blessed to give than to receive. Have you ever given someone a gift and they don't appreciate it? I want you to think about what it's like for God. He calls us to radical generosity not because he's trying to twist our arm, not because he's trying to manipulate us, but he's obsessed with generosity because he knows it sets the limits on our own personal experience. I know I have two coats in my closet. And I know someone out there has none. Some tax collectors came to be baptized and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. This seems like a very simple thought, but it is truly, if you put it into practice, the end of consumerism. I'm sorry. I know this is heavy. People are looking at me like, oh, man. You're just hitting me with a hammer again and again. I'm sorry, okay? I'm really sorry. But I'm also not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Here's an example where this is playing out in my life. I consider it an act of worship to respect my body by not excessively overindulging when I eat. I wish I could hide. <laughs> Sorry. We live in a consumeristic age and a, and a consumeristic capitalist. Um, our economy produces so much excess that self-respect through restraint seems perverse to people. If it feels good, do it. Think about the number of people who give and receive 
love freely through sexuality. Think about the people who overindulge in the buffet line. Think about the people who say, you know what, just put it on your credit card. You deserve it. You've worked hard enough. John says, under this spirit, under this spirit of, of desiring and craving and devouring life, instead of stewarding it and respecting it, the salvation that's coming to you is going to be experienced as the end of the world. So he says, don't take more than is due for you. You have to remember, all these people who ask questions, they're the bad guys. The tax collectors, they're the bad guys. The soldiers, they're the bad guys. John is not asking for them to do everything. God's going to transform their heart. But he says, you'll be ready to start. You'll be ready to start if you bring limits and constraints into your life. If you practice generosity out of your abundance. Then the soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take any money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. First of all, when he says, Don't take any money from people by force, that really restrains what a Roman soldier is allowed to do in the Second Temple period of early ancient Rome. Secondly, when, when John says, make sure you limit your authority to the laws that you're enforcing, that also limits the power they were enacting on. Remember, John is, is living in occupied territory. John is speaking to his oppressors. John says, if you want to have a change of heart, restrain yourself to the authority you are representing, and then choose to be content with life. Contentment is a choice. Contentment is a choice. If you think contentment is something that will happen to you once you have enough, you will never have enough. But contentment is a choice. Now, when all the people were in a state of expectation and were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether or not he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." A lot of people, because I, I believe that Jesus' uh, love and forgiveness is inherently nonviolent, a lot of people have, have wrongfully assumed that I think Jesus is just some like wimpy, weak, soft, like, oh, whatever goes, I'm fine with everything, I just love everybody. That's, that is actually not what Jesus is like. <laughs> there, is an, there is an intense fire in his eyes. But I want you to understand where it comes from. It comes from a place of love and forgiveness. It doesn't come from a place of retribution. The fire of his love does not discriminate. But it will burn up the chaff in your life. 
This is why I feel like it's so important for us to, to come to a place of willingness to repent and be transformed. This is why it's so important for us to not be content, sorry, to be content with what we have, but to not, to not settle for our lives without his presence. To not settle for being content with the theory of God's presence, but rather to be anticipatory of his coming unveiling and his coming return. This is why it's so important to me, because the same fire is coming to us all, but those of us who have chaff in our lives are going to feel that fire radically differently. John says Jesus is going to gather everything into his barn. Remember, all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. Everybody's brought in the same direction. Everyone is being funneled through Christ. But think about the lives that are built on injustice. Think about the people who are okay with ripping off their neighbors. Think about the people who are okay with abusing the, the environment for their own profit. Think about the people who don't really have a heart for the poor and kind of blame them, blame them for their own poverty. Those kind of people are coming toward this same fire. But it will destroy that which cannot remain eternally. I know that I'm going to stand before God in judgment. Jesus is going to judge the nations and he's going to judge me and I'm going to stand before him and I'm going to give an account for my life of every choice I made, every thought I stewarded, everything I said. And I know that if it's the fire of his love that judges me, that I will not be able to lie to myself anymore. I won't be able to make excuses. I will feel everything his love felt when I used my freedom to hurt other people. See, the thing about retribution is that it doesn't touch the heart. The fire of his love is his judgment because in the end, you will, without a doubt, feel everything love felt for every one of your choices. And when I stand before God, I want to be known as faithful. Not because I earned his salvation, but because I was willing to let his salvation reshape me. This is why it's important we realize this sort of apocalypse is optional. You can experience the fire of his love now or later. <laughs> you can go out into the wilderness. You can go out of your way, out of your ordinary life. Leave all that behind you and go out and make a different choice and invite repentance to change you. Or you can continue on your merry way. Either way, the fire of his love is coming and all flesh will see the salvation of God. I am asking us to consider, to, to prayerfully consider with deep conviction, changing our hearts and our minds to receive what this salvation means. Please, please, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm speaking to myself as I say this. I'm begging us. Do not let your hearts be desensitized to his presence. Don't treat the nearness of God casually. Don't treat the benefits you have in your life, the added blessings. It's purely things for you to to consume. Don't stand for injustice. Be content with what God has given you, but do not be content with a life of merely religious theory. John called people out into the wilderness because he wanted them to prepare their hearts by leaving their former way of living and coming out into a new barren place to make a different choice. Here's what I'm telling you today. I'm telling you that in those barren wilderness places in your life, God is providing you the same invitation. I close with this. I just want to read you Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I believe there's really only two conditions of the heart we can be in. We can either be in a valley or we can be on a mountain. (laughs) If you're in a valley, if you're longing and lacking, I want you to know something very, very special. The war is over. It has been accomplished. Stand still and see the salvation of God. I want you to know that if you're on a mountain, you have a chance to repent. You have the chance to change your heart, your attitude, your mindset so that the salvation of the Lord does not destroy you as it humbles you. The Holy Spirit is here and he's ultimately more of a minister than I am and his, his words are more important than mine. So I'm going to pray. Only you are truly aware of the condition of your heart before him. And I know there are some places in my life where I am in lack and some places in my life where I am in abundance. And I know that as I see the salvation of God, he's going to bring all these things into alignment. Or or another way of putting it is, he's going to make the crooked places in me straight.